0: Talking History History. on News Talk. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, how a group of weekend scientists in 1859 changed our relationship with time forever. The Red Prince, who was admired by Shakespeare but who became a figure of hate during the Peasants' Revolt, Engineering Peace from the Enlightenment to the European Union, 70 men and women who helped make the Middle Ages. And we'll end the show studying murder maps of historical crime scenes. Last week, we discussed the history of Paris as a city and explored the romantic image as well as the historical reality. And if you want to listen back to that or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show, Making Deep History. One afternoon in April 1859, two geologically minded businessmen found and photographed the proof for great human antiquity their evidence, small handheld stone tools found in the gravel quarries of the Somme, among the bones of ancient animals, shattered the time scale of the book of Genesis and kicked open the door for a time revolution in human history and now the story has been told in a brilliant new book Making Deep History Zeal, Perseverance and the Time Revolution of 1859 the book is published in hardback by Oxford University Press and cost £25 sterling, so about €29. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Clive Gamble to the show tonight. Clive, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. It sounds like it could be the title of a Doctor Who episode, uh, this idea of a time (laughs) revolution. Can you tell me about what exactly happened in 1859 and who these time revolutionaries were?
1: Well, as you said in the intro, they were two very geologically minded businessmen Joseph Prestwich and John Evans, Prestwich being a little bit older than Evans at the time. And they got interested in this long-standing question of how old was humanity? Was it just as old as, the, uh, as Genesis said, and uh, there people were adding up the ages of prophets and elders and getting it back to 6,000 years ago? Or was it to be measured on a geological timescale No one knew exactly how long that would be, but it was certainly going to be a lot older than 6,000 years. So what they were trying to do was to push open the door, that revolution between uh, a a recorded history in terms of written down in the Bible, and one which depended instead on geological facts and observations.
0: And this brought them then to the quarries of the Somme, and and this incredible work that they were doing really pretty much in their spare time.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Prestwich was a wine merchant, very busy man, and Evans was running a paper factory just outside Hemel Hempstead, And uh, he was also extremely busy, and they fitted it in. Of course, there weren't very many professional geologists and no archaeologists who would describe themselves as professional in those days. So yes, they fitted this in. It was a passion. But geology was often a passion for people in the 19th century. And they seized on this particular question, and they wanted to get an answer to it. And the reason they were in the Somme Valley in northern France was because there was a local antiquary, uh, and also someone interested in geology, with the name of Jacques boucher de Pert. And he was there, and he'd been collecting these very strange stone tools, which came from the gravel pits around uh, Abvi, his local town, um, and which he'd been collecting for about 20 years. And he'd made this claim, which had been rejected uh, in Paris, uh, that these were stone tools. And these stone tools were, if you like, a proxy for the humans, uh, and they, they were found with these extinct animals, and therefore... Uh, this was evidence that humans were much older than a creation date of about 6,000 years.
0: And in a way, these discoveries could really have only happened at that point because it depended so much on the modern technologies of the time that they were able to use, including things like photography and the railways and faster methods of communication. It required all of those things and more.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, we think of ourselves as very technologically... Uh, Uh, Advanced, but uh, the Victorians uh, were sipping around the countryside thanks to the railways. They were sending messages uh, through the telegrams, and interestingly, this particular find they photographed. So those three technologies actually helped to make their case, and particularly the photograph. This is one of the very first photographs of an archaeological discovery and it's of this gravel pit, and there's a workman standing in this photograph pointing with his finger to where this stone tool was found in the section surrounded by these animal bones. It's a quite remarkable picture, uh, and uh, several copies of it have survived, and I managed to track down one of them in London uh, thanks to the Geological Society fairly recently. Uh, so this was; th- these were the edge of science which involved railways telegrams and photos and which made it all very believable it gave it a kind of you know real zip and people believed this and the photograph which they could then parade in front of the or demonstrate in front of the royal society and the society of antiquaries back in london transported people to this foreign gravel pit and gave them the evidence
0: Were people upset that some of their long-held beliefs were being overturned in this way? Were there people who were not prepared to accept a time revolution?
1: There was a bit of resistance, uh, yes, and that some of it did come uh, from uh, clerics and clergymen and so on. long it was going to be. And I think that was partly because they they, they they did pull back. Prestwich was a fairly religious person, and he didn't really want to offend. Evans was less concerned about that. He would put science in front of religion, although he remained a religious uh, uh, observer until uh, he died in 1908. So yes, there was resistance, but they were actually found themselves pushing at a door which opened fairly easily. I mean, of course, many creationists today would not accept it, uh, still would not accept that humans were older than 6,000 years, uh, or, or that they evolved as Darwin later that year was to uh, propose through natural selection. But those, um, uh, op- that opposition was, uh, w- was, was fairly soon overcome.
0: Well, that's a fascinating story, Clive, and you tell it so well in the book, Making Deep History Zeal, Perseverance, and the Time Revolution of 1859. The book is published in hardback by Oxford University Press and costs £25 sterling, so about €29. Euro. The author, Clive Gamble. And Clive, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Patrick. We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Always close to the English throne, John of Gaunt left a complex legacy and a new book paints a revealing portrait of a man who held the levers of power on the English and European stage and who, according to Shakespeare gave the most beautiful of all speeches on England. The book is called The Red Prince, The Life of John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster. It's published in hardback by One World Publications and costs £20 sterling, so about €24. Euro. The author is Helen Carr. And Helen, thanks a million for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: So talk to us about John of Gaunt. Who was he and what was his relationship with his family? Because it really is, in a way, almost the beginning of, of the dynasty,
2: So John of Gaunt was the third surviving son of the warrior king, Edward III. And Edward III is particularly famous for being the king that started, initiated the Hundred Years' War. Um, So John of Gaunt was born in 1340, which was just three years into this war that lasted, you know, pretty much on and off a century. Um, And he was born very much into this warlike family. So they were, um, uh, he had... The Black Prince is his older brother. He had the, his his father was um, he was a warrior king. The incentive was war. The incentive was a Plantagenet expansion into Europe. Edward the Third wanted to take the throne of France. So he was from a very early age very invested in the idea of war and 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 conquest and territory in France.
0: And, and talk to me about then his involvement in the Hundred Years' War. How significant a figure was he, and in terms of this this legacy that you're exploring?
2: Yeah, well, what I find fascinating about Jonathan of Gaunt is that he's he's really in the sidelines of of this idea of Hundred Years' War, and as a as a warrior and as a um, as a, a soldier. Because even though he was a soldier and he did um, he did lead armies into France, he's not nearly as famous or well known for it as his brother, the Black Prince. So the Black Prince is obviously the hero of Cressy when he went and um, plucked the three feathers from the hero of John of Bohemia, um, and he was obviously the victor of Poitiers where he captured the French king, but John of Gaunt is just less, um, he's less known for his for his experiences and his um, interviews. So John of Gaunt never um, really engaged with with much battle during the Hundred Years' War, but I think what is a bit of a misnomer about the whole period and this idea of chivalry and medieval fighting is that there was constantly battles going on, but actually there really wasn't. There was only a handful, like maybe you know a few battles actually took place, um, and the Black Prince was you know the the, the famous. Prince of two of them, so one of the only battles John of Gaunt actually engaged with within the Hundred Years' War was um, in Spain, and this was called the Battle of Nahera, and it was his formative experience of pitched battle, a lot fighting alongside his brother, and that was an English victory. Um, but other than that, he pretty much spent most of his time campaigning through France and conducting what were called chevauchées, which is this sort of um, very high-speed ride through the French countryside where you destroy towns and villages and you loot um, and you, you harry the countryside trying to get the the, the French king um, or the dauphin to come out and actually meet you in pitch battle
0: And what about the Shakespearean image of him? And I suppose the popular imagination owes a lot to that Did Shakespeare get it right or did he deliberately romanticise and, and exaggerate John of Gaunt?
2: No, I, I actually really feel Shakespeare did get him right because I mean really Paint uh paints John of Gaunt at the very end of his life. He's, he's known as time honoured Lancaster. And he portrays John of Gaunt at the end of his life as somebody who is tired um and he's he's let down by his nephew, Richard the Second. Um and he's he's tried for the majority of his life to continue the interests of his father, be loyal to the English crown, the English throne. Um and he's a man who who is You know, moments away from his death, and he's torn between the loyalty that he promised to his brother, the Black Prince, and his nephew, the King Richard, um, and his own love and intentions for his son and heir, Henry Bolingbroke. So I think that he paints him um, perfectly in in that moment. And you know, writing the book and and looking at the sources around John of Gaunt's death, um, I think that Shakespeare really did get it right if I were to to reimagine what it would have been like for him in those last moments, the very beginning of the play, Richard II, I would would probably imagine the same thing.
0: He was quite a romantic figure in many ways and a big patron of the arts and so many of these positive qualities. And yet, in his own lifetime, he, he I think, was viewed as, as a, a dangerous figure. He was a focus of hate during the Peasants' Revolt. He was uh, seen as being maybe uh, too scheming and ambitious. So why is there that, that tension and conflict between the, the, the different sides of him?
2: Well, I think this becomes from there's a lot of suspicion around John of Gaunt, so a lot of people saw him as this vindictive, uh, scheming uncle, a sort of similar to the sort of Richard the Third type figure. Um, and he was also deeply unpopular because I I see him as a very forward-thinking, um, he prince. He was a diplomat. He was a politician. He was very very good at conducting foreign affairs. And I think that you know if you look at all the um the diplomatic missions that he was working on in his lifetime, he was very, very popular with um, those he was dealing with, he was popular in Scotland, he was popular in France. Um, he he didn't have this sense of uh, he did he wasn't sort of enclosed within this consciousness of 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 Englishness in a way that cut him off from the rest of Europe. And I think that he wanted to create a European transaction he wanted to make the Plantagenet very much a European dynastic house, which was really I think the intentions of his his father as well, and he became particularly unpopular because although well, two real two prongs to this, so firstly he wanted um he he claimed the throne of Castile through his second wife, so he was actually self entitled king of Spain, and I think that people in England found that. Um, a threat. I think they they couldn't understand why there were two kings effectively in England, which is always an uncomfortable dynamic. And he had many um, Spaniards in his court, so he was he had a very European, very cultural court, um, which wasn't popular in in, in London, um, in particular. Um, but he was also somebody who questioned the supremacy of the church. So he questioned the Catholic Church and the amount of control and wealth the Catholic Church had. By supporting somebody called John Wycliffe, who has been dubbed, um, in for posterity, as the the flower of the Reformation, um, and he was he, he attracted uh, a group of followers which became known as Lollards. So these are people who believe that the the Bible should be translated into English. They didn't believe in the in the power and the authority of priests, um, and they wanted to make Christianity something that was more open and accessible to everybody, rather than the, having the sort of intermediary, very wealthy and powerful figures, being the you know the Pope and the um, and the priests. So there were two reasons why he was particularly unpopular, but largely I think what's important to remember is John of Gaunt was really only unpopular within London and the um, and the home counties around London. If you, if you go north and you go into more of the territories that he controlled, so Leicester, for example, um, and moving north, he was actually very popular. He was a, a, a very good uh, feudal magnate, um, and he looked after his tenants very well. So during the Peasants' Revolt, for example, yes, they did try and target John of Gaunt. Yes, they did burn down his palace, the Savoy Palace. Um, but then you go to Leicester and he you had the whole town um, arming themselves to protect his name against um, insurgents. So it's a real two-sided thing. It really is a case of, yes, he was unpopular in some areas, but really not in others.
0: Well, Helen, it's a fascinating biography of a remarkable figure in in, in history. Uh, the book is called "The Red Prince: The Life of John of Gaunt, the Duke of Lancaster." It's published in hardback by One World Publications. The author is Helen Carr. And Helen, congratulations! An absolutely brilliant book, and thanks a million for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much.
0: We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History with me, Patrick Egan. Contrary to modern myth, medieval people did not believe the earth was flat, torture was far less common than in later centuries, and technological advances included guns, printing, blast furnaces, spectacles and the compass. And a new and engrossing and witty book tells the life stories of nearly 70 individuals who made the Middle Ages. The book is called Medieval People, from Charlemagne to Piero della Francesca. It's published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs 10.99 sterling, so about 13 euro. The author is Michael Prestwich and Michael, you're very welcome to the show. Glad to be able to talk to you. It's a very enjoyable read and I'd say you had an awful lot of fun researching and Writing it, how did you decide to choose uh, what people to include and who to leave out?
3: It wasn't easy. Um, I mean, you had to have some of the sort of major figures, I suppose. Um, you know, a few emperors and kings and such like. Um, and but it was also much more interesting, actually, to include others who were, weren't as well known, um, but who were important in different ways. Um, obviously, I mean, one of the problems with source is sources. Um, what can you go to to find out about people? And um, a good reason for choosing people is where there's a, an autobiography. But there weren't many people, unfortunately, that wrote auto- autobiographies in the Middle Ages. And um, they might be disappointing. Pedro IV, the King of Aragon, um, wrote or certainly helped with a, a, a book, um, but it's really quite dull. I mean, it's got one or two things. It says that God thought him, that, um, he didn't want to go, his, go and see his sister, and God conveniently gave him a nasty spot on his face, which gave him an excuse for not going. Um, you know, there's the odd human bit like that, but um, it's, not, it's not a terribly good book. Um, and, of course, sometimes you get books that were... There's one inspired by um, Emma of Normandy, mother of Edward, of Edward the Confessor, direction um but it's really a work of spinning that um she missed out for example her first marriage left read the unready um she didn't take to him much uh, made much of her second marriage to the Danish King Canute. But if you took about a straight history um without realizing the propaganda element, uh, you get a bit stuck. I think another problem actually in writing this book um was that um, it's got pictures and um so it's a matter you know where there's a really good picture um, then that on her whole would be somebody worth worth including
0: There are some very interesting uh, women in the book as well and some famous names familiar names like Eleanor of Aquitaine but I'm more interested perhaps and I think her listeners will be more interested in this Venetian nun who uh, led quite a, a dissolute life
3: Yes she did um, it was extraordinary really um, that, that Clara Sanuto, she's called um, her convent on an island in the, in the venetian lagoon um provided how should we put it sexual services to the young men of venice um and she also the, the the convent had got male servants um and she certainly worked her way through the male servants um she's quite snobbish but she didn't mind it you know servants servants were fair game to her um so yeah she's she's quite fun
0: Despite the problem you mentioned about sources, it's interesting the detective work you've done to uncover some interesting lives, including those who didn't come from the nobility or from any kind of wealth, and some very interesting peasants included.
3: Um, peasants, are, peasants are really quite difficult, of course, to uh, really sort of get, get under their skin. You can't. Um, but I included, for example, there's a, a, a Suffolk peasant, a guy called William Lean, um, we know about his acquisitions of land. There's some charters and documents that show that he was, he was really doing quite well. Um, we know that he got three sons, one of whom is illegitimate. Um, we know he's a small-scale farmer, really. We know what livestock he'd got, um, a couple of oxen, eight cows, um, over 100 sheep. Um, and he was a big man of the village. He was, he was sort of, you know, he's quite well off as far as the villager was concerned. Um, and there's a huge funeral feast at his death, um, Roast mutton, uh, roast beef, goose, chicken, plenty of ale. Um, so, you know, we get something in the picture there. Um, then, of course, there are peasant rebels. Um, there's a, a Frenchman, Guillaume Cale, um, who led the rebellion of the Jacquerie, or one of the leaders of the rebellion, in, in the mid-14th century. Um, and you can work out from him that he's clearly an old soldier. He arranged his troops for, for battle. Um, following intriguingly the, the English style of doing this, um, and you know, so there's, there's a bit comes out there, um, but for the most part, I'm afraid the the, the peasantry um, just remained downtrodden and uh, and unknown.
0: I suppose there is that perception that uh, people have that the Middle Ages were backwards and uh, nowhere near as, as as interesting or as exciting as, as the present day. But as actually, as, as you showed through these lives, uh, you know that there was an awful lot going on and some, you know, some very sophisticated stuff going on when it came to warfare, but some very interesting technological advances in other areas as well.
1: Yes,
3: I mean... Uh well, I don't understand, frankly. There's a guy called Richard Wallingford um, who made uh, a clock, uh, who made some astronomical instruments, um, and was a very sophisticated mathematician. That's the part that I really can't, can't I'm afraid, understand myself. But um, you know, this—he was—he was a really very formidable guy. Um, otherwise, in terms of technology, um, I mean, there's military technology, of course. Um, they developed pretty effective stone-throwing machines, trebuchets, that come in in the 12th, 13th century. Um, And I think you mentioned at the beginning gunpowder. And it was interesting, there's um, a man who's really very unknown called Jean de Lamouilly, um, and he was employed by Edward I. And he'd got the components together for gunpowder, which he placed not in guns but in clay pots, um, and they were lobbed uh, into Scottish castles. Um, and I suppose they served like grenades when they exploded. Um, and, you know, so we've got the beginnings of gunpowder there, uh, guns coming in another in another quarter of a century or so. Um, Jean de Lamy was pretty cross because he, he wasn't paid his wages properly. And uh, some years later, he, he uh, kidnapped the Earl of Pembroke who was in France at the time. But uh, he's, he's an interesting man
0: coming through. No, some fascinating stories in the book, and you bring the Middle Ages life, and of course they had a, a huge uh, pandemic as well, and a huge uh, uh, a, a huge crisis with the Black Death, and uh, some some unfortunate parallels with uh, our own pandemic. Uh,
3: yes, I mean obviously it it was very different in, in that the um, the death toll was absolutely huge. Um, I mean overall, it's probably around around fifty percent. Um, it could vary a lot. You could have one village where you know, just about 10 people died, another village where virtually the whole population was wiped out. Um, but, um, and it wasn't, of course, a virus. It was, it was a bacteria. Um, they had no clue as to what caused it. And actually, it's interesting. It's only, it was always thought to be uh, the plague bacillus. Then historians said, well, no, perhaps it wasn't. Um, one of the problems is that were there enough rats around uh, to carry the fleas that carried the bug? And, um, but then the archaeologists got to work um, and by analysing the teeth of skeletons of the period they were able actually to find, to find uh, traces of the, the, the plague bacillus so it, it, it was plague I suppose the lesson from it perhaps is that uh, you know, awful as a, as a pandemic that might be and incomprehending as doctors might be society survives, you get through it all in the end
0: That is a very positive and optimistic message and uh, I think I much need a message for us today. Okay, well, uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. The book is called Medieval People from Charlemagne to Piero della Francesca. The book is published in paperback by Thames and Hudson and costs about 13 euro. The author, Michael Prestwich, and we'll be back with more on Talking History right after this. Talking History. History. on news talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book explores how, since the 18th century, European thinkers and leaders in pursuit of lasting peace fostered the idea of European unification. The book is called Conquering Peace from the Enlightenment to the European Union. It's published in hardback by Harvard University Press and costs about €35. The author is Stella Gervas. And Stella, you're very welcome to the show tonight.
4: Thank you. This is a great pleasure for me.
0: It's a fascinating study. Can I begin with the title, Conquering Peace? That's a very interesting way of thinking about it. We don't normally think of peace being conquered.
4: Yes, indeed. Uh, um, many historical books uh, emphasise the periods of war on the world continent, especially to recount the past glory of empires, the deeds of generals and the great battles, Even in your radio show, you have hosted in the last couple of weeks debates on the Battle of Verdun and the Battle of Stalingrad. There is a good reason. Europe did have a violent past. Also, war stories and biographies of military commanders like Napoleon sell amazingly well. But there is another way to tell a good, exciting story. And that's how, after... The guns have fell silent. Do you manage to rebuild a new political order and sometimes a new civilization from the rubble? And that's what I call Conquering Peace. the title of my book.
0: So this idea of engineering peace or the engineering of peace, it's had maybe a mixed success record in the period from the Enlightenment but in a way, you could say that it's been a success since 1945, and perhaps the the European project has been a major reason for that.
4: So yes, I use the term of engineering of peace um, uh, because um, I I noticed that. Uh, um, uh, We usually focus on the great events, strong commotions in European history, but there is also a string of um, uh, plans uh, of perpetual peace or peace plans, um, which comes uh, from the late 17th century. And I was very much interested by this tradition of peacemaking in Europe after the great wars. So my book indeed is a historical fresco about peace and peacemaking uh, over the last three centuries in Europe, but with an expanded viewpoint Um, It's from the Atlantic to the Oral Mountains, and from Cape North to the Strait of Sicily. And yes, that includes even Russia and um, Turkey, or or the historical um, Ottoman Empire. So this perspective I call uh, enlarged Europe in space and time. Um, so um, the book thus traces the history from the late 18th century to our own days of this profound and trembling question, how could it be possible to prevent future wars while guaranteeing the liberties of all states?
0: And how successful or how close to succeeding were some of the earlier attempts that when you look back at maybe the peacemaking after uh, the the Napoleonic Wars and the attempts to have a concert of Europe then, the attempts, uh, say, after the First World War, how close to succeeding did they come?
4: Peace is never granted. So it's a permanent process of uh, peace building and peace keeping and uh, um, so if we judged we, if we judge um uh, the last attempts of peace making um, uh, among European states after world war two so at least in terms of longevity so we had for seventy years uh, uh still a long period of peace um uh the this last attempt of um, uh, building and keeping peace in Europe, which started um, in the aftermath of World War II uh, with European communities, it's only one of um, the attempts or uh, one of the, uh, it's the last attempt, but there was other attempts in European history to build peace after a great war after a period of chaos, and to restore um, a new, um, and to build a new European order. Uh, So my book indeed focuses on um, five main uh, events. Um, It's, uh, I tell the story of five attempts to rebuild this new peace order in Europe, uh, after a great war that completely destroyed the world order of the continent, so after the world war of the Spanish succession in the early 18th century, after Napoleon's defeat in uh, 1815, uh, after World War I and after World War II, and finally after the Cold War, which was also a war. And on the way, I try to dispel several myths uh, on European history. So, um, uh, like the Australian states, uh, like the interpretation of Versailles Treaty and others. And
0: in terms of the the, the most recent example, the the European Union has been called the greatest peace process in history. Uh, People like John Hume often refer to it as that. Do you think that... uh, The success, because in some countries we saw in the United Kingdom, the whole concept of Europe being challenged and uh, Mm. with Brexit, it being rejected by the people. How significant an element to the European Union is that peacemaking element?
4: This is a great question. In my book, I make a clear distinction between what I call the idea of Europe and the European Union as an institution, the idea of Europe in a political sense is uh, uh, how you build, how you keep a peaceful coexistence among European states on an equal footing. The European Union is just an institution. Um, for a historian of the long durée, of the long term, um, um, the European Union it's an institution and. Um, it's a tool in some um, way in order to keep um, this idea of Europe alive or to materialize this idea of Europe. Um, I never seen um, an institution, an eternal institution. So, um, and the European Union, it's as I said, it's one of the uh, last, but perhaps not the. You know, it's one of the latest, but perhaps not one of the last attempts, um, uh, in order to keep peace among European states. So, if the European Union should fail, um, uh, I believe that the Europeans will come again together um, in order to uh, find a way to coexist on a peaceful, um, uh, in a, in a peaceful uh, conditions. Um, So, um, but, and that it's important to understand that the European Union, is not an, an an end in itself. Um, I see it as an instrument in order to to keep this idea of Europe um, um, uh, alive Um, and that, for me, but the ideas of peace in Europe for me are much more powerful uh, because you cannot kill an idea, and that's the power of the idea of peace.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Stella, for joining us tonight to talk about your new book, *Conquering Peace*. From the Enlightenment to the European Union. It's published in Hardback by Harvard University Press and costs about 35 euro. The author is is Stella Gervas. And Stella, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you very much, Patrick.
0: We'll be back with more talking history on News Talk right after this. Talking history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. The most captivating and intriguing 19th century murders from around the world are re-examined in a new book which takes readers on a perilous journey around the crime scenes of the world. The book is called Murder Maps, Crime Scenes Revisited, Phrenology to Fingerprint, 1811 to 1911. The book is published in hardback by Thames and Hudson and costs £25 sterling, so about €30. The author is Dr Drew Gray and uh, Drew, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Patrick. It's a fascinating book because it, it deals with the horrifying crimes themselves, but also how the crimes were discovered and the, the detective work that was involved in the capture of the murders. And this is a period really when we see the rise of what we'd understand as the modern detective.
5: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we, we don't really have that kind of detective individual that we're all so familiar with through our television and film today until the, really until the middle of the 19th century and it sort of kind of grows from them so i think it's it's, it's that development which Dovetails also into a growing fascination with you know, the particularly nasty side of crime in this period
0: and did you find it a challenge researching the book when you had to dig deep into some of these really quite brutal crimes that and the horrifying details like how 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 difficult a task and a challenge was that for you
5: well i I wish I could say from a sort of humanitarian point of view that I found that all terribly horrible and disgusting, but I think probably because i've been researching the history of crime for you know all of my academic career I guess you kind of get a little bit um numb to it I suppose I mean I've been I've been re- researching and teaching the Whitechapel or Jack the Ripper murders for over a decade now with students and I do occasionally surprise myself by thinking you know by when you go over particularly events with them talking to other people and think ah, oh, exactly how horrible this is but I suppose it, it It's part of that academic research process and your distance from it. You know, these things happen. They didn't happen yesterday or around the corner. I find something that happened much more, you know, that that would come up in the news today. I, I can still find that quite disturbing. But this, I guess it's the distance of history makes that a bit easier for me.
0: And let's talk about some of the killers who, who you look at because you, you look, the, look at crimes across three continents, uh, part one on, on Europe, part two on the United States, part three on on, on Australia. And it's it's fascinating to see the, the differences and how unique some of them are, but also some kind of common strands with them because uh, let, maybe let's talk about some of the particular examples. For example, the French Ripper and, and the types of people that he targeted.
5: Joseph Vacher or Vacher, yes. Um, I think that, that that case was really interesting because I didn't really know very much about it. His name was something that I'd heard, you know, over the years, but I'd not done much study of sort of French criminal history. Um, and his his killings, because they take place over a period of time, he's kind of tramping across the French countryside and, you know, attacking, sexually assaulting, and and murdering as as he goes, and his his victims vary because quite often the victims of of serial killers we would expect them to be similar victims, like the you know the, the the victims of a you know of of someone like whoever Jack the Ripper was, for example. That we we all know that they they were fitted to a particular type, whereas these seem to vary quite a lot. Um, I found that interesting. I suppose it's also thinking about the context in which these people are able to get away with their murders. And that's the difficulty of the of the whole of this, this period is, is because we're only developing forensic medicine. These people can escape in a way that perhaps people wouldn't be able to escape in the modern world, we hope, because we're so much more surveyed and uh, and policing is so much more joined up than it was in the past.
0: It's also interesting that there was such a, a demand, there was such an appetite for stories about these crimes and about these criminals, and you had the sensationalist magazines of the day and the illustrations and so on, that there really was a, a demand for, for information about what, what is happening with these crimes.
5: Yeah, I, I think that one of the the continuities in the history of crime and the, his, the history of murder is is the way in which the media, however you want to define it, um dominates the the telling of these stories and people's fascination for it so the two things feed each other so newspapers are printing stories about murder because people want to read stories about murder um and it and, and kind of vice versa so throughout history from the very beginnings of newspapers in the in the early 18th century whenever there isn't any other news, so we're not at war with somebody or there's not some court scandal or something involving the the royal family, then we'll put in crime news because crime news will always get people buying it. And that might be crime news in your locality or the the neighboring state or the neighboring parish or wherever, but also those big stories that capture people's attention. Um, and in the 19th century, particularly, that that's growing because it, it also dovetails with our love of melodrama. So emergence emerges a kind of you know, melodramatic stage production, you know, with a with a clearly definable baddie, you know, with the bristling whiskers and the and the sort of demure um, female victim. Those those kind of tropes work really well with the public, and if you add them, you, the, the blurring of the lines in some respects, in fact. Is really clear in the way that the history of murders are told in the, in, in, um, the press and, and later other forms of media.
0: And it's interesting as well how new technology aids the detection process. So things like uh, having, having access to photography, you can have photographs of the crime scenes, but also then fingerprints. And was the discovery and the use of fingerprints as, as big a breakthrough as DNA in, in, a, in a later period?
5: I think it must have been quite revolutionary, and, and it, but it took them quite a while to work out. I guess the the understanding of the use of fingerprints. It starts off in the middle of the 19th century. People are experimenting with this and realizing that perhaps fingerprints can be a you know a definite identification process. You know, and, and they get used for things like contracts. So you know, you, you know that that's your thumbprint. That's, that's that's only yours. It can't be somebody else's. They begin to understand that. But its application to crime, which you would have thought would be obvious, takes until the very end of the 19th century. And I think the first convicted uh, murderers in Britain are in the in 1905, and the Strattons. Uh, and they're convicted on the on the strength of fingerprints, a fingerprint being found on a cash box, for example. So, various people in different places are experimenting with different forms of, of identifying criminals. Obviously, the photograph is fantastic for that. Um, and the, sort of, the idea of creating a criminal type or um, measuring the criminal's body parts, you know, their head, their, how wide their eyes are, etc., etc et cetera. All those things can help us to identify somebody when identities are easier to shift in the night, easier to move.
0: Well it's a fascinating study it's called Murder Maps Crime Scenes Revisited published in hardback by Thames and Hudson it costs about 30 euro the author is Dr Drew Gray and Drew thanks so much for joining us
5: Thank you very much for your time today
0: And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History my thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together Susan Cattle my producer and Peter Malloy on sound Next week we'll be looking at Hugh O'Neill and the Nine Years War and finding out how Ireland was changed forever so join us next week on News Talk. We've been talking history. Good night. Talking history History. on News Talk.